0: A podcast one production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squibes. Welcome to On Her Game. Madison D. Rosario is a star of Australian sport, not just for the impact she's having on the track, but for the difference that she's making off it. She first competed in the Paralympics as a 14-year-old, and in 2020, she was supposed to be competing at her fourth Games in Tokyo. Coached by the Paralympic legend Louise Savage, Madison has taken her racing to a new level and in 2018 brought home two gold medals at the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast before going on to win the London Marathon. It's hard to miss Madison. She's in magazines everywhere, having done shoots for Vogue, Elle, Women's Health. She's the face of Under Armour and this year was named Barbie's Australian Shiro with a doll created in her honour. The best thing about this is that Madison has been able to use this platform to drive change and shift the conversation around disability. Madison's earliest memory is playing with her two sisters.
1: I have two sisters. One's a year and a half older, one's a year and a half younger. And I remember, I think the front room of one of our houses, which was like a library slash study slash dining room. And it was storming and we were trying to shove UNO cards through the gaps in the table. (laughs) (laughs) How old were you? Oh, I can't remember. I'm trying to remember the house we were in, but would not have been that old. Maybe four or five? Right. I love
0: UNO. It's a universal game, isn't it? It's still a hit to these days with a lot of families. It's the one
1: that we travel (laughs) with. It's so easy and you can have like multiple players. So we (laughs) traveled with like multiple decks of UNO cards and have these massive games. We're on trips. It's cool. So where did you grow up? What was life like for, for Madison? I grew up in Perth. And we moved around a lot because my dad is like just very restless and always wants to be somewhere new (laughs) and do new things. Um, So, yeah, we moved around a lot, different schools. We lived on a bus for a year, a double-decker bus that my dad like refurnished and made. You lived on it? Because he decided he wanted to travel around Australia. And then by the time it took to do the bus up, he had changed his mind and he was bored of that and wanted something else. So we never did it. <laughs> um, but we lived on a bus for a year. Um, yeah, so lots of different things like that. I have, I all my memories. I think as a kid are basically just like with my sisters, we did everything together.
0: That's very cool. Yeah. So you, you were in the wheelchair then. Mm-hmm. Um, that all changed for you, your whole life really, when you were four. Um, can you take me back then? And do you remember much from that time?
1: I don't remember it. I actually have no memory whatsoever. I think when I think about it, it's kind of strange. I almost think I think about it from the perspective of my mum who told me about mm. it. So I, I have absolutely no memory of it. Um, I do know both my parents were absolutely incredible. And they, I think, handled it the best possible way. There's, there's, mm. For me, there's no trauma related with that memory. It was just like the smoothest possible transition. Mm. And whereas for my parents, I understand all those unknowns, it, it would have been, obviously, like, mm. that's such a strange situation. And so they handled it in such a way that neither myself or my sisters ever felt anything negative about that event. Mm. It was just like purely neutral thing. It was like your sister's now in a chair and that was it. It was Mm. just very, very simple. And I remember like I was in hospital I think for three weeks at the time that it happened and Mm. my parents wouldn't let in any of my family members if they were being sad or I think in my mum's word, if anyone was dramatic, they weren't allowed in the room. So, yeah, it was just kind of an event that happened that I never realised was significant, I think, until I was probably in my 20s, like until I was a lot older.
0: Right. So, if for those who don't know the story, can you tell us how it it was that you ended up in a wheelchair?
1: Yeah, I have what's called transverse myelitis. So, basically, I I got a strand of the flu. My body attacked it, then just dramatically attacked the rest of it, too. And it attacked a part of my myelin sheath, which surrounds the spinal cord. So, it, it damaged that. And, yeah all happen pretty quick. How, yeah, how quick does that, how do you go
0: from having flu symptoms to then being in the situation you found yourself in?
1: Very, as in over the span of a couple of hours. I was wow. Okay, my this is again my poor dad. I was on the trampoline and I was a massive drama queen as a child, huge drama queen. And <laughs> I, I love that in, from what your mum said about
0: no drama. Don't bring any drama in the I room. had enough
1: of it already. Yeah. And I ran inside and I was like, I cannot feel my feet. And my dad was trying to cook and he was on the phone and he did not believe me because I would do things like this all the time to try and get attention. Aww. And so basically <laughs> he's like, please go outside. He's like arguing with me like on the phone and something's gone on fire in the kitchen and it's just been this (laughs) horrible situation for my dad. And then basically, obviously, I I was telling the truth this time and my mum came home from work and saw me and she was like, something's very wrong. And we went straight to hospital.
0: And then in the space of a few hours, things.
1: Yeah, it kind of creeps its way up your body and it got uh, to about collarbone level and I thought it might get a bit higher. Um, But they kind of I think it's a steroid, something that treats it. And basically it kind of pushed the paralysis back down to, to waist level. How rare is that? It is. It's an incredibly rare thing to happen, like one in millions. And yet there's so many people with transverse myelitis in our sport, which is bizarre. Right? Okay. There's quite a few of us. Yeah. Right. Interesting.
0: Was there any message that your parents told you at that time that you took on and can remember and have taken throughout your life?
1: I can't think of a, a specific message as such, but I think the way my parents just readjusted so quickly, I think my mum was never one to settle for something that I didn't help her thrive, I think is the best way to put it. So she is an Auslan interpreter. Both her parents are deaf. It's her first language. And she had the three of us. And I think as we all got a bit older, she started to miss working and didn't know how to balance those two things. And so Mm. she went back to TAFE to get her certification for interpreting. Um, she realized that she wasn't in love with the way the industry was functioning and and didn't think it was serving the people the way it should have been. The mm. deaf community wasn't the priority of it. And so rather than, I think, s- just sitting with that, she started her own agency instead and just changed the whole business. She's now like, you know, runs the the <laughs> most successful and the biggest like Auslan interpreting agency in, in Perth. Wow. And she's force everyone else to kind of keep up with the pace that she has set that does prioritize. Mm. So I think she's never kind of been one to settle for what she's been dealt. She will build that and make something bigger that actually works for her. And I don't think I ever realized how much that had impacted me because mm. she's never spoken about it in those words. She's just done it. And I think I realized that again, very recently. And I remember telling her like this is what you've done and and this is how it's affected me and like you know very specific examples mm. and i just remember her face like lighting up me like that is what i've done and and i've heard her speak about it since and it's the coolest thing like just the way she's just navigated a world and made it want to suit her and mm. it one that helps people around her really be authentic and thrive and yeah she's one of my favorite people in the world obviously
0: <laughs> what was life like um, for you at school what were, what were you like at school
1: we've actually homeschooled for a little bit in First grade, midway through it, um, I had to have like just a a routine surgery, Mm. like a pin put in my hip or something like that. And so for a little while I I feel like maybe I had like a teacher's aid that was kind of just like making sure I was all good Mm. at times. And so my mum was basically kind of like just checking in between jobs at the time. Mm. And I remember sitting in the back of the class and if you did something good. You got to go and write your name on the whiteboard in the gold star section. And I answered a question or something. And getting to the desks was a little bit trickier in a chair. And so the teacher was basically like, "Oh, can so and so write Madison's name on the board for her?" And my mom was like, "The cool part about that is like getting to be super proud of yourself and go write your name on." And so she kind of went home. Her and my dad had a chat. They were like, "That's not a great environment. Like she's mm. I don't know how old a new one, but like that's too young to be like noting these differences." And so. Basically, my dad is ridiculously intelligent. And so basically he was like, I can teach them. So they pulled all of us out of school. My older sister, my little right. sister's in kindergarten, maybe. And homeschooled us for like midway through first grade to I think year four or five, I went back to school. So it was just for a few years when right. we were younger. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a weird thing about my childhood. <laughs> what do you reckon?
0: What impact did that have then on you?
1: I think we somehow managed to dodge the first few years where you're so, I guess, susceptible to to what you're told that I kind of got went back to school a little bit older and I guess so self-assured of who I was Yeah. that those kind of comments about disability that we are yeah. so prone to making didn't really have too much impact because I think my parents took that time, not necessarily realizing what they were doing, mm. to kind of build up. Quite resilient little human, which yeah. I don't think those comments had quite as as big of an impact. Now that I not knew how to deal with comments, but knew who I was, mm. that they were just comments from from other people that so I have to I didn't have to take on board. Yeah, and it was also great because I got to go to school every day with with both my sisters <laughs> after the bus. We lived on a farm for twelve months, um, and so school cool. was like, you know, my my dad turned one of the sheds on the property into a proper classroom. Um, that he fully it up. And so it was the best childhood. Can you take me back and just tell me how you found sport, first of all? Yeah, we had a really active family. um, And I basically just played sport with my sisters. And my little sister is so tall and just so good at sport. And I remember we would play netball together, which I was terrible at. Um, And both my sisters were phenomenal at soccer. And I remember I would play with them and I would just be the worst goalkeeper in the world, hoping that they were good enough at their job that I would never have to see the ball at all. But it was just fun because I was out there doing, you know, things (laughs) with them. And um, when I was about 12, I think everyone keeps growing. And obviously, like, I wasn't (laughs) getting taller. Mm. And so that's when we started exploring the wheelchair sports kind of options. Mm. And basketball was, basketball's huge, wheelchair basketball in, Mm. in WA. That's like, you know, our team is centralized there. That it's, it's the one. And I remember going and trying and being so uncoordinated and not able to catch a ball, definitely able to catch a ball and push a chair and then try and coordinate any of that. <sighs> and the coach, a man named Frank Ponta, who was also Louisa's first coach, yep. he pulled me to the side and basically he was like, you're not an asset to this team at all. Um, you're oh, terrible gosh. at this. How old are you when he said this? <laughs> Twelve, maybe. Oh, no. <laughs> and he was like, but I have a track chair in the storage room. Do you want to try it out? And I tried it out in the parking lot of the basketball stadium. Mm-hmm. It was way too big for me. I had all this foam on the sides to try and keep me in the center oh of this gosh. chair. And I was so bad at it, but I just loved it because it was so independent. It was so much faster than my everyday chair. And and I just fell in love with it. And yeah, it all went from there. So you've never tried any team sports since then. It's Not just been track there. only. Yep. Yep. Every now okay. and again we get put in for a relay and I'm like, I don't think this is my forte at all. Right.
0: Do you remember your earliest memory of the Paralympics then?
1: I remember I remember Louise, I remember who Louise was and I remember mm. my parents talking about her. You know, this is Sydney 2000 and obviously she just dominated that and I can't remember if this is from before or after 2000 but um, two of my aunties are also interpreters and one of them was working at an event that Louise was at and actually got a, a photograph of her and a signature from her that I must have somewhere still, I will have to find it. And I remember Louise. And so to come in this full circle, I guess, in this weird world and to now be working with her every day mm. and, and she's the reason behind so much that I've been able to do is it's strange to think about. But, yeah, Louise would be my first memory of the Paralympics.
0: What kind of difference did she make in your, in your career?
1: Oh, Louise made every difference. I, I go into every race with so much confidence that I don't have really that much before the race, but she just instills this. She's such a powerhouse of a woman then she's like, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. You can, these are your skills, do it. I'm like, they are my skills. Again, like, I can't <laughs> believe it so much because she believes it. And, mm. and she's just, was so open to changing everything that she knew and felt about sport to suit me. And I think that's one of the most incredible skills. And, and I don't think it's intentional. It's not like mm. she was trying to be that person. I think that's just who she is. She wanted to create help me create a space where I could be find out the athlete that I was. And then to this day she helps me hold that space. Like even now I I will get criticism or comments on I don't get fiery when I race. And it's like maybe you should, maybe you should care more about these things Mm. and lose one that will protect that space for me Mm. and be like, no, this is who she is and she's good at her job because this is how we do it. And Mm. she kind of gives me the freedom to be that athlete in that space. And so she's been I would not be anywhere near where I am without her. <laughs>
0: Does it still? You have to pinch yourself that this is your idol, and now she's your your yeah. coach and your friend.
1: And it, it's incredible knowing that any problem, any anything that I'm nervous about when it comes to not just the racing, but the lead up, the training, everything mm. around it, she knows. She's done. And and I remember going into Com Games in, in, in 2018 and being, you know, everyone was like racing in front of a home crowd is is the best feeling in the world, and mm. and it and it is like. But I remember like maybe a week before, Lou was like. It is the best feeling in the world, but it is also the most nerve-wracking feeling in the world. As it gets closer, Mm. like, there's suddenly that external pressure that when you travel feels so far away is suddenly, like, 50 metres from you and it's it's a stadium full of it. And so she prepared me for that and, Mm. and, you know, obviously wouldn't have been able to without having experienced herself. Like, she obviously... Race Sydney two thousand, race the Melbourne Common games. She's done all of that. And mm. so I get to have this woman by my side who is just a wealth of knowledge and experience and like truly understands that whole process. And so, yeah, I couldn't ask for a better person.
0: You were fourteen when you first competed at the Paralympics. That's so young to go to the Paralympics. What was it like for a fourteen year old back then?
1: It was overwhelming. It was um I'm so glad I got to do that, I think, before there was a lot of pressure to actually perform um. Mm and to to have that experience and like Beijing is is definitely made me fall in love with the sport i think just being surrounded by so many people who just wanted to excel and be the best and and it's not often that you're in a village of people that just want to push themselves to mm. like every limit that is physically and, and mentally possible and so being surrounded by that people, being surrounded by my team, who to this day is just kind of this one big family that that we're a part of. And then, you know, you throw in the fact that we're all there in the green and gold, you are just a part of something enormous. Mm. And, and that's an amazing feeling. So I was definitely overwhelmed by everything, the village, the dining hall, just, you know, I remember walking out onto the track for the opening ceremony and it was like something out of a film. It was You're walking out there with 400 other Australians, and there's 80,000 people in the stands, and all you can see is the flashing of cameras. There's there's music. There's Mm. you know thousands of people like there on the track with you from everywhere in the world, and that's it's actually the only opening ceremony I've ever been to, and it's just it stands out in my mind. It's just this memory that I'll never forget. That Mm. was my first taste of it, and knowing as you walk into the stadium that that's stadium that we're going to be racing at as well that's the cool thing about athletics is your opening ceremonies is where you're about to race so yeah that was I was I was definitely young and it was definitely overwhelming um but yeah that's one of my absolute favorite memories
0: and was that like take me back to when you thought you're good at this and that you're good enough to go to the Paralympics did that happen straight away because obviously team sports didn't work out for you and ball sports but yeah at what point did you realize or did Frank realize your first coach that um that you could go as far as the Paralympics with this?
1: It happened very quickly. I remember going to my first ever international competition and it was in Sydney. Um, but we had, you know, an international field there racing. And it was Louise that talked my mom into letting me, you know, travel to this event. And my mom came as well. And I think seeing everyone there, everyone competing, and I was last across the line in, in every event. I was, you know, this 13 year old, just like, you know, seeing this world for the first time. And I remember when I got home from that, Louise called me and that's when we started working together. And so mm-hmm. to have someone like Lou see that in me and and now as I've worked with her so much, I see her see that potential in so many junior athletes that we have coming up. And it is very flattering to know that she saw that in me at, at that point. And I think though one of the moments that I really, really realized that I could take it far, I think making a team is is incredible but I knew it that like there was so much more that I wanted to do than, than, than just make a team. And that point was in Beijing. And it was the woman that won every event that I was in is this Canadian woman named Chantal Pedicler. And she was actually Louise's biggest rival through Athens. <laughs> and she finished Beijing on, on five gold medals. And we bookended the, the 100 meters. She won it and I was last across the line. <laughs> and she had just done her medal ceremony for, I think, her third or fourth event, third or fourth gold medal. And and she was walking back to the Canadian tent and she passed the Australian tent and she double backed, saw me and handed me her bouquet of flowers that she just received on the dais and basically said, these are for you until you get your own. Aww. And thinking back about that now, that's such an unreal moment that yeah. someone like Chantel saw fourteen year old me yeah. and and saw something there that I hadn't seen myself and I think that was one of the the moment that I kind of really yeah knew I could go far in it. So two thousand
0: and eight, you came away with a silver in uh, the relay and obviously lit a spark in you. Twenty twelve, the London Paralympics came. Um, you can come away with any medals. What was what was going on there for for Madison? That was a strange one. I feel um, cruel saying there were no, no. <laughs> medals, what's happening? But only because every, like when you medal first and you've medaled so many times, but what yeah. was happening there?
1: Uh, yeah, so 2008 coming over the medal was surprising, to be honest, for sure. We were one of the last members of the team selected and um, I don't think and expected anything huge of us. So that was a huge surprise mm. for the four of us, for sure. Um, and leading into 2012, I was very injured leading into it, which was a little bit of a challenge. And that was when I was a little bit falling out of love with the sport as well. Every time I was in my chair, I was in so much pain from several injuries. Um, and I was trying to work out what kind of an athlete that I was. And I didn't think I could be the athlete that was required of me to actually Mm. do it. And Lou talks about it now, lining up for one of those races. She was like, you looked like you'd already given up before the race had even started. And that was the 400, which was my very last event. And the 800 had happened just before. And that was the only event that I really thought that I could podium in. And Mm. I finished fourth. So just shy of the podium, which is one of the most heartbreaking positions to finish in. Yeah, it is. And lining up for the 400, I didn't see it at the time. But Lou was like, you could tell you didn't want to be there. You'd given up before it started. And after that is when we made all of those changes. And coming into 2014 Com Games was when I think we'd really turned it around and we, I was the fittest I've ever been and I was falling back in love with the sport and I wasn't able to compete in, in 2014 um, because of a, a DVT. And so watching that race from the stands and watching Angie Ballard, who was my roommate, win it was mm. one of the coolest moments as a teammate to get to experience. But being forced to step away from the sport for a bit because of injury, I think forced me to reassess everything and fall back in love with it. So 2012 to 14 was a bit of a I wasn't sure really where I was going with it or if I even really wanted to be in it. And 2014 is when we kind of just made the decision to commit everything possible to it. I, I moved to Sydney early 2015 um, to train... From Perth? From Perth to, mm-hmm. to train closer to Lou. And we just turned everything around. And, and since then, it's, yeah, definitely been on the up.
0: 2016, the Rio Olympics, you won your first individual medal. would have been a huge moment for you. But it was... Really, 2018 for you was a massive game-changing year, wasn't it?
1: It was, yeah. 2018 was an incredible year. And and for me personally, but for our sport in Australia, mm. it changed so much. And and having other people who'd never seen our sport just fall in love with it, I think was one of the most amazing things that came out about those com games. And mm. I remember racing the 1500 in the stadium in front of a home crowd, in front of that many Australians, and just being so overwhelmed with how much everyone there was loved our sport. Mm. And, and, and the marathon was a little while later, a few days later, and I remember Al started at 6 a.m., and I remember thinking, there is no way in the world there's going to be people out there to watch this because it is absurdly early. And I just remember when it started, like, it was packed. There were so many people there, and everyone knew not only the Australians' names, but they knew every athlete who'd competed in that 1,500 mm no matter where they were from and everyone knew and, and was invested. And and I think I was, I've was i never been more proud to be Australian for how much we just threw everything into those games and backed our athletes. And I think it's a challenge for for para sport. I think we don't necessarily always get visibility, but when we do, we people do love it. It, mm. it is an interesting sport, but I think the personalities that come out of it are, I mean, I'm biased, but they're some of my favourite humans yeah. in the world. And so I think to to have a home games and have that I many Australians just fall in love with the sport and back it and want to see more and push for it for mm. us. That was an amazing feeling. No, it wasn't just us fighting for that kind of level playing field. We had Australia behind us for that as well. It's been, yeah, that was, was amazing. Was this the first time, or is it that
0: they had the para-athletes with um, able-bodied in the Commonwealth Games?
1: It was the um, most para-events we've ever had. Mm. We've had it, but it's, it's, we've had events in the Commonwealth Games for a while, never that many, mm. Um and never kind of elevated to that level either. And... Because
0: that's the one thing I remember from the, the Commonwealth Games, how much I personally loved seeing the para-athletes, not in a different section, but together. Like, it was just, it was, it was the best even playing field I've, I've seen for a while, but I enjoyed, like you said, I enjoyed seeing the backstories. I, I, I enjoyed seeing our para-athletes alongside um, our other athletes as well on one-on-one. I just, I found it so inspiring to be able to, um, to learn more as well. And I think, I think, yeah, that was, it was something different about Commonwealth Games um, at, the Gold Coast in yeah. that respect, wasn't there?
1: And that's the thing. I, I think it, it's sport in its most authentic form. People mm. saw it and now we kind of just need that energy to continue into yep. the Paralympics, people to tune in, to watch it, to back it, to, you know, there's a lot of us who race the marathons, who are racing every couple of months mm. all around the world to, to tune in to that, to watch that, to, you know, there's so much happening that mm. I think the more eyes we get on it, the more we will elevate those profiles and then, Mm. you know, the more publicity that our sport gets and gets to grow and then the more pathways that our kids with disabilities will see coming through. And that's a huge one is I think kids with disabilities don't see people that look like them Mm. very often Mm. in in high profile places. And we can shine such a bright light on that through Mm. sport. I think that's one of the most incredible things that sport can offer is it affects everyone in some way whether you're competing as an athlete mm. whether you're in administration whether you're just an avid fan whether you just watch it for fun on the mm. weekends it, it doesn't matter I think it does impact every single person and to have people with disabilities being able to see that and creating those pathways for kids I remember I didn't find out about wheelchair sports until I was told about it it wasn't like I I mm. saw it and just knew that I could do that and that's what com games had changed and if we you know do show, showcase more of what we're doing, you know, throughout the years, not just every, you know, four years that mm. will change all of that. And yeah, I think in Australia we're, we're making huge leaps. Did you get after those Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast, what kind of response did you get
0: from, you talk about young kids messaging you, what kind of response did you get?
1: I actually got the most beautiful messages from very young kids' mums, um, I think was the, <laughs> the best ones I got. Basically just showing people as people. And I think when we see stories, like if we're scrolling through social media and we see an image of a person with a disability, I always stop for a second. I'm like, is this article going to be about disability? And nine times out of 10, it is. Mm. And Com Games wasn't that. It was one of the few times we've seen individuals who who have disabilities and the disability be the least interesting thing about them. Mm. And so I think for kids and, and parents of kids with disabilities and their peers to, to see entire people who also happen to have a disability get to be authentic and have Personalities and and other interesting things about them, and obviously for us that's sport, but it can be you know literally anything. Um, yeah, it, it was it was parents of kids with disabilities who who saw just individuals thriving and and being strong and everything that they wanted to be and pursuing you know goals and mm. stuff like that, and realizing that yeah those pathways do exist and it doesn't those pathways don't lead to sport they lead mm. to whatever you want it to, and I think it's just creating those mm. opportunities that. Always existed, but we just no one saw them. So how do you how do you follow it if mm. you can't say it? I'm gonna cry only because
0: um, my daughter is um, nine months, and we'd just been told um, they thought that she had cerebral palsy. For me personally, seeing um, cerebral palsy athletes alongside Abel was so beautiful. My husband and I were phoning each other, and we were like, "Look, this is like you know, check this one out. Check this athlete out." It's so like we were. I know there was just something so normalising if she did have cerebral palsy, and she doesn't, but if she did from what they were telling us, seeing athletes on that stage who had cerebral palsy it just exposed us to them and just made us realise if she does, it's okay. It's all right. It's not, it was such a beautiful thing, I thought. And there was the power of sport to show us as parents. So we just, when you said that as parents, and I wasn't going to mention it, I was like, but that I'm was so why, glad you did that. That's and, why I bring it up because it was so important for me personally and my husband to yeah. see if that was what, you know, Imogen's future was going to hold and that was going to be okay. Of course.
1: and And that's what I think we need to change is this idea that disability has to be a, a negative thing and I, mm. I know it comes from a, a place of of discomfort of like the unknown and it comes from a fear of not necessarily wanting to be in that position and I, and I understand where it comes from but if we can change the idea of disability to be a, a purely neutral one and from that point you get to be anything as a human that you want to be on top of that we, we can't mm. change it and no matter where on the spectrum of, of, of disability like you are like that it is what it is. there's mm. nothing we can do about it we it's every decision we make after that that I would love to see change. I've had conversations with people who n- know what I do you know for for a job they you know know that I've been to a couple of games and and all the rest, and the first question they will still ask is, "Oh, but what happened? Why are you in a wheelchair mm. and it blows my mind that you have a person in front of you who's maybe has interesting stories to tell, but the thing that you've gravitated towards is something that is completely out of their control Mm. and is the farthest thing from Mm. what I, I identify as most. And I would love to see that change, this interest around disability to kind of disappear and just be a neutral thing and we mm. get to see people for everything they are on, on top of it. It's it's so far out of our control that it strikes me as such a bizarre thing to, mm. to kind of shine such a bright light on when these are entire humans and this is just a starting point mm. to be whoever they are on top of that. So you get frustrated when people bring that up? I do. And and <laughs> I and I don't get frustrated because of I don't think it's an insensitive question. I Mm. I know for some people there is trauma related to those stories Mm. and and I get that. For myself personally, there isn't. I I don't remember it at Mm. all. And it's just the fact that you've seen someone and the only interesting thing that you've noted about them that you want to have a chat Mm. about is something that I don't really identify with as a part of who I am. It's just a starting point. And so there is such a negative stigma associated with disability that it's not like you're pointing out a, a feature on someone that they've, they're proud of or who worked hard for or anything that's about Mm. them as a person. It's this thing that, you know, when someone notices society has historically viewed very negatively, and you Mm. know that that is the light you are now being seen in. And we can't, kind of move past that until we just normalize it. And Mm. and an indicator of it being normalized is that question not being interesting enough to ask. Yeah. So it's not the question that's a problem. I, you know, that question comes up in, you know, all my personal relationships as well. At some Mm. point they're gonna want to know. And and that doesn't bother me at all. It's the fact that the society that we exist in demands that question be asked. Mm. And if we can normalize it, it will become the least interesting thing and therefore not be asked. Um do you get strangers asking that? Oh, God, all the time. <laughs> all the time. My mum, actually, my mum was mentioning this the other day. I hadn't heard this story before. But she used to get asked all the time. And we were in a store once and the woman was like, what's wrong with your daughter? Mm. My mum panicked that I was doing something behind her. And <laughs> my favourite one, though, my my poor mum was so sick of it by, by the end. Um, someone asked her if, you know, oh, was she born with the chair? And my mum said, no, that came later. It would not have fit. And it's it's just this, we we do ask these questions and and once we're in a place where those questions aren't asked, it will just be an indicator that we don't care enough to ask them, which is perfect.
0: Let's talk about the shift in culture. Have you found that there's been a shift in culture and attitude when it comes to people with disabilities and impairments?
1: There definitely has. And we're constantly moving in such a positive direction. And I'm so proud of all... The brands that I get to work with, that none of them are interested in that side of of what mm. I do. I think we're all very aligned in just you know working together with with myself as as an athlete and and nothing else. And just that, even if I'm I'm not talking about about disability in, th- in those conversations, people are going to be seeing a person with a disability talking about something else. And that visibility mm. is what's so Im- so important. Mm-hmm. And and from when I started in this sport, and you know all the media and questions that have been asked, it has changed. It has definitely changed in a very positive direction and there is still so much work to do and I think we need to make sure we're having those conversations with everyone within our community mm. to look at how it best benefits everyone going forward and not just, I think athletes with disabilities are definitely getting a lot of attention right now, which is amazing for myself, mm. selfishly, but for <laughs> for us as a sport and the movement, but there's so much more than that. I think we need to make sure that every single industry is representative of of the community that that we live in mm. and and it, it definitely is changing and I think the biggest way to to change how we view disability is and any minority or anything we're uncomfortable about is just exposure. If you're working alongside someone with a disability every day, you're not gonna be seeing it like mm. I went to the vet with my dog the other day and the, the the woman that was looking after him for me, she like was in a chair and I remember i'm I'm 26 I, I live in this well, my community is people with disabilities and I was still surprised to see that. And then I was so mad at myself right. for being surprised. But yeah. we don't see that. And I remember going through high school when all my friends were were getting part-time jobs um, you know, towards the end of high school. And I remember thinking, like, what would I possibly do? I've never seen a person in a wheelchair in mm. a casual job that my friends are now working. Mm. And and that's an enormous problem. We make up such a huge percentage mm. of, of our population, but we don't authentically represent that. And so I think culture will shift enormously once we have that authentic uh, ratio, I guess, Mm. in our workplaces and we're all engaging, interacting with everyone from our community, not just an exclusive part of it.
0: Because I see you everywhere at the moment, Madison. (laughs) All the magazines. Um, I see you on billboards and Under Armour campaigns as well. Like it's been incredible and it's it's encouraging, isn't it, to see that um, sponsors getting on board and you're definitely benefiting at the moment. <laughs> I, but I see you everywhere. I'm
1: like, it who is-, is Madison? I want to know more about Madison. God, that has not stopped being weird. I don't think I'll ever get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah,
0: what was the weirdest? What was the weirdest thing seeing yourself on?
1: The cover of Women's Health. Yeah, for sure. That was great cover. Um, I actually hadn't seen it. When it came out, I was... I was in Berlin for the marathon and I came back from another marathon and basically I was the, the women in sport, women's health event Mm. was that night. And so basically I hadn't seen it at all and the first time I saw the magazine was I was being interviewed at the event a women's health event and they're like this is you and it was like the most shocking <laughs> thing um to, to actually shocking in a good way shocking in a good yeah. way and <laughs> and it was incredible and and to kind of share that platform you know with Kate Campbell and Elise mm. Perry is the highest of compliments possible and and that yeah that's definitely been the most shocking one another big
0: campaign that you're involved in, which I love. You're the 2020 Shiro from Barbie. There's a Barbie with Madison on it, like a Madison Barbie. What was that like? And how did did you get the phone call? And they said, describe to me that phone call.
1: Yeah, that was um, the agency that represents Mattel, represents Barbie, basically reached out through social media and was like, hey, campaign hey, you want to work on, and mm. no real details. And so I- basically did what i always do i screenshot it and i sent it to my manager and was like Mm. you know follow this up it looks very very cool didn't know any details and then he called me i think within 48 hours and and basically he was like you have to do this this is the most incredible campaign you've ever been a part of (laughs) hadn't told me any details yet but he's like you're doing this like (gasps) non-negotiable and when the details kind of came out it was just this it is the highest compliment i've ever been paid for like 100 percent um To be be chosen by Barbie for that campaign, Mm. considering the the depth of incredible female athletes we have in Australia, that's... I don't even have the words for that (laughs) one. Um, It's not just about telling girls that they can be anything they want to be. It's about showing everyone that girls can be anything they want to be. I think, you know, I think seeing people with disabilities and spotlight is is great for people with disabilities. Like seeing yourself represented is is so important, but Mm. your peers also seeing you represented is Mm. the flip side of that coin and it's equally important. You need to be surrounded by a community that believes that you can be Mm. anything that you choose to be. And so... Barbie doing that and being in, in every household, the, the the dream house now has an elevator, I right, just learned as well. Like they, <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, cool. like they're so yeah. committed to this authentic diversity, not yeah. just tokenistic. And so that was amazing. And so, yeah, to be chosen by Barbie to, to work with them on that project was amazing.
0: So can we buy a Madison de Rosario Barbie. No, no. I look
1: for it for my little girl for her birthday. I wish she could. (laughs) I really wish she could. No, that one's it's a
0: one of a kind. What would have meant for you when you were growing up to have that kind of Barbie?
1: That it would have been unreal. It was it would have been unreal as I got older, I think. So when I was very young, I had the most supportive family that I I never noticed Mm. I never once thought that there wasn't something that I couldn't do if I put my mind to it. Mm. And same as my sisters, and it wasn't until I want to say maybe early high school or very late primary school that I started to realize that the world did not agree with me on that point. And I want want kids with disabilities to grow up in a world where they don't hit a point where they realize that the world doesn't think they're capable of everything. Mm. Because that's when it changes. It's not because we don't believe you are a perfectly capable human and Mm. you feel like you can do whatever it is that you know, we all obviously have like a limit to what we're able to do. Like I will never play ball sports, for example. It's just not <laughs> in me. So there's, you know, the, obviously there's, you know, limitations yeah. on 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 things, but we set our own limitations because we don't see the options. Mm. And that's what Barbie is changing. That's what all this visibility is changing. And that's what I want to play whatever small part I can play mm. in changing is I want kids with disabilities growing up in a world where the world doesn't impose restrictions on them that don't otherwise exist.
0: I do want to go more into, like, go back to 2018 because it was such a a big year for you for the Commonwealth Games, as we explained. Um, The London Marathon as well, a sprint finish, hugely exciting.
1: Yeah, that was, oh, yeah, um, that was (laughs) incredible. Speechless. Yeah, I just... I wasn't expecting that, and it's not like it's a result that I've been able to back up since. It's not like, you know, the the consistency isn't isn't exactly there yet. So it was kind of coming off the back of com games. I remember just being physically exhausted, but mm. emotionally exhausted. I think the lead up into those games had been overwhelming, mm. um, and then to kind of have it all happen and then to end on on such a high note was. I think just emotionally draining. I remember I stayed a night, an extra night after the village closed in in Brisbane, and then I flew the next morning from Brisbane to London, and I remember getting there just being next like, "Morning, <laughs> yeah." I remember being there and basically just being like, "What am I doing here?" Like, yeah, you know, just one of the um, you know, I, I would have loved to have a moment with family or something just to kind of settle for a second. So I'd never really London Marathon is the only time I think I've gone into a race without mentally much prep for it just because everything all the focus had been on on com games Mm. and London Marathon obviously there was an entire field it was you know more the the strongest athletes over the marathon are American and Swiss and so obviously they Mm. weren't you know on the Gold Coast with us and so I had no idea what that was going to look like and it was actually a lack of familiarity with the course that ended up being my biggest advantage. London Marathon ends with a couple of tricky turns, like 90 degree Mm. turns leading into the mountain, you know, outside the palace. And there's kind of this seems to be unspoken rule that you kind of leave that sprint for when you just have it right in front of you. Mm. And I didn't know that. I didn't know how many turns were coming up. I panicked. And there were six of us coming into it. And I remember with about a kilometer to go, the pace just slowed down. So basically in in that particular race, we hadn't had a sprint finish amongst women in, in years. And we, no one really knew how to Handle that I guess yeah. and so everyone wants to conserve for that last sprint because everyone in that final pack are incredibly strong athletes And yeah. I remember lining up for it being like if I can place top five I will be so pleased it was my first like full international marathon in, in years yeah. I, I'd taken a bit of a break from it and coming around the bend I remember seeing I think the signs the kilometer to go they start counting you down like kilometer to go 900 to go 800 to go and I remember seeing I think it was a 600 to go and being like I have a I have a very bad short sprint. If I, if we all start from the same point with a hundred to go, I, I will not win that race. Right. And so 600 to go, I was like, I don't have a choice. Like I, I have to go. And
0: 600. I, and so I
1: panicked. And I remember watching the race back, the commentary being like, Madison's broken early. Like, you know, there's a couple of tricky turns left. And I remember just head down and just whatever was going to happen was going to happen. Yeah. And I, Tatiana crossed that line second and I, was barely holding that gap and and it was the biggest shock I definitely was not lining up for that race ever thinking I would win it so you know top five was, was definitely the mm. goal and it was the coolest moment because crossing the line that the five women that I just raced were I think as soon as the race ends I, I love our sport so much everyone kind of goes from being rivals to being so supportive yeah. in, immediately and and they all knew as the first major I had won and I was just like surrounded by the women that I'd just been raising being the ones that were like, that was amazing, like congratulations and and kind of this, you know, community that we have. And and yeah,
0: it was, it was unreal. Obviously this year was going to be building up to be an even bigger year because the last few years have just been incredible for for yourself. With the postponement of the Paralympics this year, what kind of impact has that had on you both psychologically and and physically? Because obviously you work up until this moment, but we haven't really touched on, I guess, the psychological element as well, that how it affects you.
1: We were kind of told shortly before the delay was announced that there might be a cancellation, that if the games didn't go ahead as planned in, in 2020, they wouldn't go ahead at all. So that was the, I think, more shocking news. And then at some point the delay was announced and that was suddenly just put into the most positive light because it was a better alternative, obviously, than, than a cancellation. But it's it's changed our approach. And I think that the bigger change has been everything else in the is cancelled as well. Like since, you know, we've stopped traveling, like I'm meant to be in Switzerland racing right now mm. and there's been three marathons that have kind of, the dates have kind of come and gone since it all started. So it's more everything has been put on pause. I think a, a 12-month delay for Paralympics, there's so much focus on and so much build-up that basically you will change your whole world to make sure that you can mm. be there performing. So that was quite an easy decision as soon as it was announced my team my performance team was talking about like okay what does 2021 now look like and that plan was made basically in the week that the delay was announced we already had our plan in place and basically it's because it's identical to what 2020 Mm. was going to look like but that was not even a question just the focus shift and we we reset entirely and mentally it's definitely been more of a challenge I don't know the last time I spent this much time in Mm. Australia um and not having something to train for was really challenging Mm. um and not knowing how well you're doing and, and not knowing how well your competitors are doing is, is kind of just playing games with my head a little bit. Um, <laughs> are you going on the Instagrams and social media
0: just going, all right, well, what training are you doing? How are you looking? Exactly. Your muscles are looking good. You've obviously been working hard. My
1: psychologist basically told me to stop doing that. Really? Because yeah. I was getting so like, what if, like, what if, like, I don't know, suddenly yeah. they're Made massive leaps and bounds. She's like, "Do you know that?" Though I was like, "Well, no, but we don't know why." twelve months is a
0: long time to hold on to that kind of anxiety, isn't it? It is.
1: And and basically, she was like, "It'll be what it's going to be." Like all you can do is like what you can do. And so, yeah, yeah. But not having anything to train for, kind of in those smaller kind of bits, has Mm. been really challenging. But it's also provided this opportunity that we never thought we'd get, which is just create a huge amount of base work. Mm. We're normally kind of structuring our training around our races, and we're overseas racing every couple of months at least and so it's quite an interrupted training that we mostly do and so any you know changes we want to make there's always the risk of it Mm. not working and having to race and 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 self-sabotage that race basically and so we've kind of used this opportunity to just kind of build that base you know as soon as gyms open again we're going to try and really take advantage of of an uninterrupted kind of training block Mm. which I've never been able to do before (laughs) so that's the plus side of it
0: (laughs) we ask everyone at the end of this podcast, what advice they would give their 10 year old self. So what advice would you give your 10 year old self?
1: I would tell 10 year old me that it's gonna look nothing like what you think it's gonna look like. (laughs) And that's the best possible outcome. And I would tell myself that you already have all of the pieces that you need to make this work. And I would still tell 26 year old me that when I think I run into into anything. and, And by that, I mean, it's like, you have all the jigsaw puzzle pieces in front of you and it's a puzzle with with no edges to start with and you don't even know what the image is. <laughs> but somehow the pieces will all fit together. And when you, I guess, run out of resources, one of those pieces is being able to ask and knowing who to ask and surrounding mm. yourself with those people. And so I think it's it seems complicated and and it is, but you are already everything you need to be. You don't need to be anything more to change like you're allowed to evolve and and you should evolve but you already have all the pieces to be an entire human.
0: Madison thank you so much for joining me on On Her Game.
1: Thank you for having me
0: on. On Her Game was presented by me Sam Squires and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia Producer Lindsay Green, audio producer Darcy Thompson, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au. Download the free Podcast One Australia app or search on her Game Podcasts.